just to get us started and thinking about it, you know, when you think about there's, of course, there's different types of joy. There is, uh, well, actually, before we get to different types, just, I mean, I don't know, but do I have to define joy? Some of these things are really hard to find, like human emotion that we all experience. Joy, the definition that I got, feeling of great pleasure. There you go. <laughs> Happiness, delight, some synonyms. But some different aspects or types of joy, and you, and you know this, right? There's like the thrill joy. I mean, a roller coaster. You might be impatient and bored standing in line for 30, 60 minutes, but you know, at the end, if you like that sort of thing, it's worth it if you twist and turn for you know, 30 seconds at 60 miles an hour. It's like the thrill of joy. Then there's the surprise type of joy. You, know, you take a quiz or test and you feel like, oh, that went really badly. And a day or two later, you get the result back, and you're surprised. It went a lot better than you anticipated. That, it's like, this is wonderful. May your Princeton career be filled with many of those types of surprises. <laughs> There's stepping into the next chapter, Joy. I, I know I talked to many of you, and one of the things that you're excited about at various points, like three or four years here, is especially if you have older siblings, is that you become an uncle or an aunt for the first time or a second time. An older sibling, you know, you know, you have a niece or a nephew that you kind of go home and just hold and just enjoy. And then when they start to cry, you just give it right back to them. <laughs> and there's joy in that too. <laughs> but you know, stepping into that next chapter of joy. Um, and a big question as you, as you consider joy, a big question that's lurking behind our joy is, you know, what is the source of our joy. You know, where is it coming from? What's it based on? And in tonight's Bible passage, God invites us to experience a deep and profound joy. And, and it's a joy that's based on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It, it's a joy that's not based on our circumstances, although, you know, we enjoy those things when they come. But it's a joy that's not based on our circumstances, but it's a joy that is based on the unfailing and the unwavering love of Christ. And the passage that we'll look at tonight comes from John's Gospel, chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible or your phone app or whatever, you can pull that out, and I have it up here on the screen for you to look at. So John's Gospel, chapter 2 in the New Testament. This is an account which you would call an aha moment for John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the twelve. It's an aha moment, not just for him, but for some of the other disciples as well. Because John and the others, they were already following Jesus. They had their ideas about who Jesus was, and that's what compelled them to follow him. But on this occasion, this account, this story that we're looking at tonight, their faith in Jesus, it goes to the next level. So the simple outline for us tonight is first, we're going to walk through this story together. And then second, I want to connect the lesson of this story in a personal way to us and wrapping it back to our joy. So first, the story, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 up here on the screen. This is the word of God for us tonight. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So the story begins with on the third day, just a strange way to begin a story. Uh, but last Friday, if you remember, if you were here, we looked at Jesus' encounter with a man named Nathaniel, who ends up being one of the disciples and one of the followers of Jesus. And Nathaniel started off very cynical, very skeptical about Jesus. 
Jesus is from Nazareth? You know, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of that place? We shouldn't expect anything to pay attention to to come out of that place, let alone God's chosen one, God's Messiah. So this story, John chapter 2, is only three days after that story, if you were here from last week. So here we are. Now Jesus and his disciples, they're beginning their life together. And one of the first things they do together is they go off to a wedding. And you can imagine the scene. Lots of family, the wider community of this little town, Cana. They're all there celebrating together. And I could actually just, you know, you start to think of weddings. Just we, um, who, on PF staff, we went to a number of alumni weddings. Um, these are former PFers who are, you know, now moved on. And, you know, and when, they're, when they get married, their weddings are a lot like mini Princeton reunions. Just a small handful of people who flock back together to celebrate in the joy of, you know, this couple and to, to see one another. And in Jesus' day, well, and usually when that happens, it's, it's like it goes on to like one or two days, right? It's a weekend. But in Jesus' day, this is different. A wedding would last an entire week. It was a much bigger event. So when you plan a wedding today, you've got one or two days of logistics, and frankly, a lot, a lot of people who plan that wedding, it takes them like a year to plan that. So you can imagine the scale and the logistics of planning a wedding for a week. This is arguably the biggest moment of a family's life in the community during Jesus' day. So everybody wants their wedding. This is true then. This is true now. Everybody wants their wedding to what? To just perfect, right? To have that perfect, memorable occasion. Well, that rarely happens. <laughs> so, verse 3. Here we go. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. <laughs> this, is, this is a disaster. It, 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 to run out of food or drink only a couple of days into the celebration means really the party's over. It's hard for us to comprehend the full weight of this. It, it, you know, this is a traditional honor and shame-based culture. And so to, to, to fail in this way and disappoint the community like this would have been an unthinkable disgrace to bear. I mean, I see some of you shaking your head and you understand. Maybe you come from more of a culture like this. I, I mean, you bring the community together to celebrate, but now what do you have to do? You have to break it up. It's over prematurely. Go home. Sorry, we're done here. This is a weighty public shame that would be really hard for a family to get. And, you know, just when I was 15 years old, I experienced a fraction of this public shame and embarrassment. I, I really wanted to get my moped license. <laughs> it, the community rallied behind me. <laughs> my dad bought a moped and it didn't work, but he's very handy and so he tuned it up and after his hands had, had use of it, he, I, it worked. My, my friends quizzed me on the moped rules of the road in New Jersey. My mom took a day off of work to actually drive me to the DMV. My teachers excused me from class to take the test. I can't believe that. <laughs> my little community rallied behind me to get my moped license, and then when the moment came, I took the written exam, and I scored 21 out of 25. And to pass, you had to score 22 out of 25. One lower than I needed. And then my mom drove me back to school. <laughs> and 
and I had to face my friends. And unfortunately, 15-year-old boys are not known for their mercy and compassion. <laughs> so I made the mistake of telling my best friend that I failed, because he, he said, let me see your license, let me see the picture. And I said, no, 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 it didn't go well. And then I went to class, and then, you know, 40 minutes later, I come out of class, and like, I think all 2,000 people in my high school knew I had failed my multi-testing thing. <laughs> Oh, that's, you know, you take that, you know, Chris Saladay, the honor student, failed his New Jersey moped test. It was, it was a disgrace. But now you take that, it's a small humiliation for a 15-year-old boy, right? I'm long over it, though my friends do remind me of it now. <laughs> Even though I'm 44, <laughs> they have not forgotten. But you take that small humiliation and you just multiply it by like a factor of 100 or 1,000, and, and you probably have your own story or stories, and, and, and then you begin to get a sense of the weight of what's going on here. And now Mary, Jesus' mother, is right here, she believes that somehow her son can be that somebody who steps in and saves the family from this disgrace. When we know this because she goes to him and she says, very simply, they have no more wine. Implied, do something. And Jesus replies, here's verse four, woman. Why do you even call me? <laughs> By the way, don't call your mother that. <laughs> Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. <laughs> if, I, if Jesus played baseball, the manager would put him in left field. Do you know what I'm saying right now? Like, there's an expression like, you know, that was a comment from out of left field. And this is one of those moments where it seemingly Jesus is speaking way over our heads, or his mother's head. It's strange, it's unexpected. It's, it, it doesn't quite fit with the flow of the story. His mom tells him the family's out of wine. Jesus says, woman, why involve me? My hour's not yet come. And I just want you to let that linger for a bit. No explanation right now, and we'll come back to that, okay? But the story moves on, verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. For Mary's not put off by her son's strange, enigmatic comment. <laughs> She persists, she tells the servants, okay, you know what? Here he is, just listen to him. Whatever he says, just do it. That's the gospel according to Mary, I once heard somebody say. <laughs> Mary knows her son and she knows he might get involved. So verses six through eight. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. So Jesus instructs the servants to fill these six stone containers. They're used for purification ritual. And, and he says, fill them to the brim with water. And just to give you the sense of the amount, this is similar to six bathtubs of water. Or if you make a serious Costco run, this would be like two or three hundred, two liters of Coke. This is an extraordinary amount of liquid. And after the servants fill up the jars with water, Jesus tells them to take a sample to the master of the banquet. And once again, they, they do what Jesus says. They, they wisely follow Mary's charge to just do whatever he tells you. They just follow his instructions. And then verses 9 and 10, we move on. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. But the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside. And he said... Everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. 
but you have saved the best till now. Now, we don't know, did the bridegroom have any idea of the embarrassment that was about to come on his family? Did he ever come to know that he and his family were saved by the miraculous act of one who chose to have mercy? We don't know, because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story comes into sharp focus in this final verse right here, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, you know this. The main purpose of the sign is to point people to a greater reality beyond itself. Like, if you're coming to Princeton and you see a sign that reads Princeton five miles, that's a helpful pointer. You're close, but you're not there. You don't stay at the sign. You, your purpose of that sign is to get you to Princeton itself. This is Jesus' first miracle of many, but Jesus doesn't want people to fixate on the miraculous acts that he can do. He wants people to see that his ability to do the miraculous is intended to point them beyond the miracle itself and to see the glory of who he actually is, to see his genuine identity, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the one that we all need. So now consider this. Of all of the signs that Jesus could have chosen to be his very first one, why did he choose this one? You know, changing water into wine at a small wedding in Cana. I mean, if you were the son of God, and I, I realize that's a really dangerous start to, the, to a question for many, or if not all of you, but if you, if you were the son of God, what would have been your first sign? Probably for honesty to say, well, I, I would have gotten revenge with this, you know, this person. Or I would have come on the scene in this unmistakable, awesome display, right? Well, why did Jesus make this his first time? Why not heal the sick and show people that you have the power over suffering and pain? And actually, Jesus does that. If you keep reading John's Gospel, he does that in chapter 4, 5, and 9. Why not raise the dead back to life and show people that you have the power over death? Like this sort of this invincible enemy that we all face. Well, I'm going to keep reading John. Jesus does that in chapter 11. So he has those as signs too, but why, why is this his first sign? Why does he do this when he comes on the scene? I mean, imagine you're an entrepreneur on Shark Tank launching your product for the first time. Or you're a musician releasing your very first album. Or a political candidate giving your very first big speech. In every case, you will choose your public presentation, your first public presentation, with enormous care so that everybody else will know exactly what you are about. You know people will pay close attention to your first public statement. So why does Jesus do this as his first sign? So this brings us to a lesson or a truth to come away with on, in this account. Now, some other, some, some other possibilities that we could explore, but we're not going to. If, you know, if, if Jesus, and I love this one, if Jesus could transform water into beautiful, vibrant, rich wine, then he can transform people like us into the people God wants us to be. 
Or another lesson truth, if Jesus can take Jesus can save people from their deepest shame and guilt, like he does in this story on a small scale, he can do that on a bigger scale. These are lessons you can draw from this story, but the one that I want to focus on here, the one I, 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 the, the thing I think this points to, the sign, is Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. And therefore, there is great joy. So think about it. Jesus is at a wedding feast. But the people in charge, the master of ceremonies, the bridegroom, the families, they fail in their role of getting everything in order to make everybody's joy and celebration complete. And then Jesus steps in and he shows himself to be the true master of ceremonies, the true bridegroom. <clears throat> One of the major rules of weddings is you don't steal the spotlight from the bride and the groom. Right? Well, Jesus doesn't listen to that major rule here. <laughs> like he, he, the wedding feast doesn't fail, but that's because Jesus decided to make it complete. And, and, and you begin to see this wedding feast, isn't, it's not about the two people in Cana, not anymore anyway. The wedding feast, it's a sign pointing to the wedding feasts of all wedding feasts. And here's where, you know, it really helps to know the whole Bible. One of the major themes running through the whole Bible is that God is preparing a great feast of joy between himself and his people. A wedding feast between God and his beloved. And the disciples, see, they knew this. They're there, and then they see this sign. They would have been familiar with this idea. It was, it was a part of their heritage. They would have been familiar with passages like Isaiah 25. Actually, you need to be out to that. I'm just, just, just skimming through this. On this mountain, this is 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah the prophet says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. Shroud is what you get covered with when you die. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away their tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Or further on in Isaiah, there's Isaiah 54 and 62, where God says this through his prophet. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And I believe that's in this moment, you know, this is where many of the disciples, it said in the very last verse, they took the next step of faith and they believed in him. They believed that Jesus is the one who is bringing this promised feast of God. It, it's, that's filled with the best of meats and the finest of wines, where death is destroyed and tears are wiped away and people's disgrace and sin is removed forever. They believe that this is the one who is the master of all ceremonies. This is the Lord of joy. This is the ultimate bridegroom. And he's arrived. So Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom, and therefore there is joy. So let's now take this lesson in truth, the sign that they saw, and let's make it a personal and hopefully a personal reality, and hopefully have it sink down more deeply into our hearts with the last few minutes that we have here. So think about weddings. 
When two people are on the altar, how are they looking at each other? I mean, do you see looks of dread? <laughs> Obligation? Like, oh, all right, here we go. The rest of my life now with this person. Okay, let's get to the vows. No, of course not. That is not the picture that you see. You see looks of gladness, looks of adoration, security. And there's this, like, this joyful willingness to, to, to surrender yourself to the other, to, to live a life of service and sacrifice for the sake of the other. And, and why? Well, there are lots of reasons, but at the very least, it's because you know, you know that the other person loves you and is committed to you and will do anything for you. I mean, you can just think of just all the poems and the, the love songs that have been written through the ages. And the, the one that I've heard in my car the most the most in the past few years, thanks to my kids, is it, from Philip Phillips, Gone, Gone, Gone. Yeah, I mean, they just kind of just quote some of this. When life leaves you high and dry, I'll be at your door tonight if you need help. If you need help. When you fall like a statue, I'm going to be there to catch you, put you on your feet, on your feet. You're my backbone, you're my cornerstone, you're my crutch when my legs stop moving, you're my head start, you're my rugged heart. Like a drum, baby, don't stop beating. Like a drum, baby, don't stop <laughs> Like a drum, my heart never stops beating for you. Yeah, and so maybe that's not the song that you would have thought, but that's the one that I thought of, right? But there's millions of those out there. I mean, you know this. And we might chuckle at some of the lyrics that we hear, some of the poems we read, but, but they really what they do is they uncover what we're all longing for. You know, to be genuinely loved by someone else who is willing to, to, to commit to us and to sacrifice for us, who won't leave us, and who will be faithful to the end. And I believe this is the love that we long for from our parents when God brings us into the world. This is the love that, that we long for when we, when we grow up and, and, and we have siblings. We long it for, from them and then ultimately from friends. And then, you know, we long that from, that from a girlfriend or a boyfriend, that they would reciprocate this type, type of love and then, even, you know, and a spouse. But tonight, what I, what I want you to do, this is the main thing that we are thinking about and considering is do you see yourself as the object of Christ's love and affection that he has sacrificed for you that he won't ever leave you that he will be faithful to you to the end and, and yes I know if you're following Jesus you know and you think about how he sees you how he looks at you yeah he views you as his disciple his learner and look we all all of us have a lot to learn we need to listen to him, and we need to do what he says, just like Mary said. And we get that. We understand, like, okay, that's a good and healthy way to view my relationship with Jesus. I'm his disciple. I'm his learner. And you, can all, you also get that, you know, Jesus sees you. When he looks at you, he sees you as a cleansed sinner. You know, we get that because we're sinners who need forgiveness. Forgiveness with the Holy God. And he's the Savior who provides that by grace through faith. Not a result of our own works or effort. And again, that's a really good and healthy way to view our relationship with Christ. But do you ever consider that Jesus doesn't just see you as a disciple and a learner and as a blind sinner? 
but he, when he looks at you, he sees you as a beloved spouse, a dear bride. It's true. And it's just as true as disciple or cleansed sinner. Do you ever conceive of your relationship with Christ that way? Because he does. And maybe this is hard for you to imagine. Maybe even the thinking of this makes it is a little uncomfortable for you. Maybe you don't have a category for this. And maybe this is a deep comfort for you. It has been. But I invite you, wherever you're at, Jesus invites you to consider this, to really rethink and reflect on this. And when I was a freshman here, this kind of thinking, it just transformed my relationship with Christ. I, I mean, I remember on Christmas Day, I went home. And being home, I went out and threw up my notepad. No, I'm kidding. I, I'm serious. I, I went home, and late one night, I was sitting underneath the Christmas tree. And I was all alone. Everybody else had gone to bed. And the Christmas lights were still on. And I was thinking and reflecting on Christmas and the meaning of Christmas. And the meaning of Christmas hit me for the first time. But then I, it, it went further. And my thinking went something like this. Jesus came here to this earth, and he entered this world as a baby. Because he loves me. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But, and then I thought, you know, he took on the grief and the pain and suffering of being a human being because he loves me. And he died on the cross to bring me back to God because he loves me. And he rose again, and by rising again on the third day, that proves that his love is real and unshakable. And I remember thinking... In light of all that, I remember thinking, you know what? I want to belong to Jesus. I want to live for him. I really want to be him. If that's how he loves me, then I want to live for him. I want to belong to him. And then when you hear that, it starts to sound a lot like a love between two really dear friends, or, you know, or you know, ideally a, a husband and wife, a marriage relationship. And when you realize that Jesus loved you first, that way, for you, not just me, but for you, that you're the object of such extraordinary and undeserved love, then the next step is to receive it and to keep receiving it day by day. And, and then it's out of that, out of joy of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, gratitude, humility, you then obey him and live your life for him because you belong to him. Now, I want you to go back. Remember Jesus' comment to his mother, and I told you to come back to that. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> this now can make more sense in light of what we're saying. Jesus knows that to secure us as his bride, he's the bridegroom, to secure us as his bride, to bring us to himself, that we can belong to him, to get us to God's feast of joy, that he must suffer and die to take away our sin. Hanging on the cross is his hour. And he will go there and he will do it because of his profound love for us. And the last slide we need, Hebrews 12, 12. Just listen to this. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us, our, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, there it is again, set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus go to the cross according to this? Because of the joy set before him 
He has joy too. And what was that joy? It was you and me. We were the joy that was set before him. That is why he was willing to go. It was his father's will and he was willing to do it because by so doing, he had the joy of bringing us to himself and reconciling us with God. So the most important person in the universe, Jesus Christ, loves you with a bigger, purer, more faithful love than that of a husband or wife. Even the best husband or wife out there. You are the object of his affection. The goal of his sacrifice. Do you see that? Are you moved by that? Moved to be grateful, humble, and then to rejoice. And one of the big challenges is remembering that this love for Christ is always before us, and, and, and he continues to have that for us. And, and, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning, what is the first thing on your mind? I mean, I'll be very real. The list of things that you have to do that day, maybe a trial or difficulty that you or, or a loved one is facing, you know, the difficult news events of the day, and they, they keep coming in, and these things make you sad, they make you angry, they discourage you. I mean, how, you know, there are many things that swarm through our mind and heart at the start of the day. But we need to remember this, that we are loved by an unfailing and unwavering love of Christ. And, and then may that to start our day and then begin to transform how we live in that day, how we, how we interpret the things that come at us throughout the day. And may that for us be an irrepressible, constant source of joy and delight for us. May we remind each other of this great love that Christ has for each of us throughout this year. We do that through song, through prayer, through meetings like this, through acts of service to one another, through our witness on campus. May we grow in our knowledge and delight in the love of Christ as we live for him and for his joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, that is our prayer. So grateful for each one here tonight. And I pray that you would meet them in a very real way through your spirit, not just tonight, but through the semester, through the year. And by meeting them, meeting us, growing us in the knowledge of your love, your deep love for us. And may that be a source of great joy, joy that transcends the circumstances of Encourage each of us, even tonight, in that, that love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.